0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. And uh, this is a special uh, bonus podcast uh, uh, about Russia Ukraine. A lot going on. Uh, It seems like things are moving uh, uh, minute by minute. And uh, I thought it'd be useful to give you, the listener, uh, an update uh, with regard to how we think things are playing out and what it means for the global economy. And to that end, I've asked uh, a number of my uh, different colleagues to join us from different parts of the world to give you a sense of how uh, we think uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is playing out in these different parts of the world. So I won't introduce my colleagues yet, we'll kind of introduce them along the way, but let me begin with uh, Garav Ganguly. Garav is uh, leading the way uh, in Europe, uh, head of EMEA economics, European Middle East uh, African economics and has been paying very close attention to this. So Garab, can you just give us a sense of, uh, you know, what's going on now and, and how you're thinking about uh, how this is gonna play out for the European economy?
1: Hi, hi Mark, and thanks. Um, it continues to be a very dark time for Europe. Um, the war that Russia has, has launched against Ukraine is entering what, what appears to be a very brutal phase right now, given that it has made less gains than it probably had hoped to make in the first week. Um, there are reports of civilian casualties and economic destruction. We could actually get a, be entering a phase where we see very high civilian casualties. There's a, clearly a humanitarian disaster in progress. Reports of half a million refugees are more pouring into Poland and other East European countries. So it is, it is a very dark moment in European history, I think. We have reports of the eastern city of Kharkiv under rocket attack, uh, reports of cluster bombs being used, and Russian troops have actually taken over parts of the north, east, and south of the country. Um, The West has responded by imposing sanctions – UK, U.S., EU, various other countries have imposed wide-ranging sanctions, and these are too lengthy to list, but it's worth just highlighting some of these, given that these are having a significant impact on the Russian system. Uh, The EU has excluded several Russian banks from the SWIFT payment system. Uh, The U.S. has imposed significant sanctions on two of the largest Russian banks, Burbank and VTB, and removed the ability to transact in U.S. dollars. UK. U.S. and the EU have frozen the assets of the Russian Central Bank. That's quite significant because of the 630-odd billion of foreign reserves that the Russian Central Bank has. About 50% is in these in the currencies of these three regions. Um, Russian aircraft can't use EU airspace and various individuals. A number of individuals and oligarchs have been sanctioned, raising concerns around property markets in, in particular parts of Europe, such as London and Switzerland. Um Asset prices have also moved quite a lot, as you can imagine, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'll focus on oil and gas, which are primary drivers of inflation in Europe, certainly, and then talk a little bit about what we're seeing, early signs that we are seeing in Europe. Brent is trading at about 100, above $110 a barrel right now. It's actually up about 12% since the 24th of Feb when Russian forces launched the attack on Ukraine. Um, European gas prices have spiked much more. So they're actually up about 80% since 24th of Feb and are currently trading around 170 euros per megawatt hour. That's very high. Back in December of, of last year, when there was a temporary stoppage in one of the gas pipelines from Russia to Europe, gas prices spiked at close to 200 euros. So this the current price is, is, is really another very high spike and it's quite alarming to see. Um, equity markets in Europe are doing not, not doing too badly. Uh, the FTSE is down a bit, Eurostocks down a bit. The reports that Eurostocks will actually remove stocks will actually remove various Russian companies from the from the index. Um, and actually, Russian companies, particularly Russian banks uh, in Europe, listed in Europe, have seen the equity pretty much go to zero. In fact, Spurbank Europe has ceased trading and will be liquidated. So quite a lot of impact. From, from the sanctions and also, I guess, the uncertainty around oil and gas supplies, which is affecting oil and gas markets, and, and has the potential certainly to impact quite heavily on European inflation. Um, Europe inflation came out, February inflation came out at 5.8% year on year. That's not reflecting the current situation, of course, that's just reflecting the uncertainty that has led to a ramp up in gas prices over the course of pretty much all of last year. Um, That 5.8% increase in headline inflation uh, in headline prices also has underlying it, a 31% increase in energy prices on a year-on-year basis. It's a very significant increase in energy price inflation. So there there is now, I guess, a heightened sense of concern around the possibility for European inflation to continue to rise. So I'll stop there because there's a lot to talk about around this, but this is a very high level, what's been happening over the last seven days, a lot of uncertainty around the conflict and the war, uh, white, white, white sanctions in response, moves in oil and gas markets and concerns in Europe, particularly around inflation, potentially around supply. I should probably add that as of now, Russia continues to send gas into Europe
0: great yeah nice uh, thank you for that and uh, you know, obviously very disconcerting uh let me uh, focus a bit on uh energy oil because that is the most obvious principal link between what's going on in uh, russia ukraine and in the rest of the world uh and oil prices uh are up uh and I'd go back a little further back in time uh, before the Russia Russia actually invaded, because energy markets started discounting an invasion long before that. So my sense is that uh, you know prices now. See, you said Brent's like one ten a little over one ten. WTI West Texas Intermediate is about the same, a little bit lower than that. There's a bit of a spread. Uh, that's up about. I think at this point, probably more like thirty bucks a barrel from where we were before Russia-Ukraine really got on the radar screen here. So, I, you know, it, uh, I think that's kind of the delta increase in in oil and gas uh, gas prices. Uh, my my, you know, in our uh, outlook, you know, our baseline outlook, our most likely scenario. And obviously, there's a, a lot of scenarios here some of which are pretty dark, uh, a lot of downside risk. But in the baseline, we're assuming that Russia, uh, the invasion stops in Ukraine, that the, that Russia doesn't go beyond that, and that there is no disruption, significant disruption to Russian oil, natural gas, or other commodity supplies to the market. Uh, if that's the case, then, uh, our expectation is that oil is peaking now, roughly speaking, maybe not on a day-to-day or intraday basis. It could obviously go higher, given the uncertainties here, but that that this is roughly the peak in price, and that by, the, by summer, and certainly by the second half of this year, because of these higher prices, we'll see some softer demand for oil and natural gas and other energy, and some uh, increase in supply, because Frackers here in North America can make a lot of money at this price, and I would expect OPEC, Saudi in particular, to pump a little tomorrow. We might see Iran come on with some oil that we'd see prices start to come in. That's kind of sort of how we're thinking about uh, things in in the baseline view. does that make sense to you, Garab? Does that sound roughly right? Well, first of all, did I, did I characterize the outlook in your, in your view uh, in the way that you think about it? And does that feel like a, a pretty good baseline scenario?
1: I think it's fair to say that in our baseline, we don't envisage any lengthy disruption in oil and gas supplies. Um, markets are going to be unsettled for some time to come over the next few weeks, maybe even a couple of months. That's very likely. Um, but we expect Russia to continue to supply oil and gas to Europe and to the rest of the world, and certainly from what we've seen from sanctions thus far, sanctions have been very, very carefully crafted to exclude energy. Um, that said, there's some tension right now, so you probably heard that um, various European energy companies are sort of shunning – are shunning Russian oil and, and sort of self-sanctioning themselves, if you like. And. and that that's that's an interesting development, and we'll see how long that takes to to normalise. But certainly, it's an interesting development that Europe is choosing on its own accord to actually walk back a little bit from Russian oil. We'll have to see what that does to 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 markets. But I think it's fair to say that in the baseline, we would not envisage any significant disruption in Russian oil and gas supplies, and that uh, OPEC and US would would start to compensate, and this would lead to oil prices coming back in
0: and why are they self sanctioning i mean this is i this is a surprise to me i you know and this came i guess over the last 24 hours this is starting to happen but what what what's going on why are western uh, oil energy companies shunning russian oil what, what what's behind that
1: so there are probably a few reasons to this uh, one could be that it's actually they're quite uncertain as to how they might make payments for their oil um, i've understood that uh, shipping vessels particularly, so this is oil going in containers rather than pipeline oil into Europe, that that containers, uh, container companies and the owners of vessels uh, are reluctant to transact with Russian companies to transport oil because they're not quite sure of the incidence of sanctions, whether it affects them, um, so they're holding back. So, and some of it, of course, there, there are reputational reasons around it in Europe for not actually wanting to touch Russian oil at this stage. So probably a combination of factors, some of these issues might resolve over time. Clarity over how the payment system might work, clarity around around sanctions, etc. These might just resolve over time.
0: Right. Okay. Um, let me bring in a, a few of our, of, uh, our other colleagues uh, to to weigh in on this. Uh, Chris Chris Therese is the deputy chief economist. Uh, Ryan Ryan Sweet's the director of real time economics, and also Jesse Rogers. Jesse is uh, 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 manages a lot of our emerging market analysis, and you know obviously emerging markets are critically dependent on energy and other commodities. Hey, hey, uh, Chris, Ryan, Jesse, uh, anything to add on, uh, particularly on the oil energy front that, you know, think is important? Um, uh, I mean, the, you know, obviously uh, Putin could decide to cut off oil and energy supplies to the rest of the world. I, that mean, we're assuming he won't do that because uh, that's cutting his nose to spite his face. I mean, the economy is the russian economy is reeling and that would just completely send it down the rabbit hole so we're assuming that he won't do that but that's possible uh and uh we're assuming that these these uh efforts at self-sanctioning kind of iron themselves out but do you think those are reasonable assumptions any anything to add on the energy front chris do you have any views on this i know you're you're a little bit more bearish on oil prices right than what I just expressed in our baseline. Sure. I put a little bit more weight
2: on the downside uh, risks here, right? you ascribe the, you know, some rationality to Putin's decisions here uh, regarding um, restricting oil flows, but that, you know, we're dealing with a non-rational or seemingly non-rational actor here. So it's, there's, it's certainly plausible. I also question how quickly uh, supply response can actually come online. Um, Certainly there's a lot of, Incentive here for producers to to pump or to explore, but um, we still have supply chain shocks that we're still recovering from from the pandemic. Those could certainly weigh on the ability to ramp up very quickly. So I think I think the supply will come, but I wonder how quickly it can actually get to market.
0: Yeah. So we're, as I said, we're assuming that one ten is kind of sort of the peak, and we hang at these high levels. For the least, the next few months, probably through mid-year, and then prices come in quickly in the second half of the year. You think that's a pretty good baseline view, or you take much umbrage with that, or you, as a baseline? That's I think. a baseline, but there's a lot of downside risk. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, okay, uh, all right. Uh, Ryan, uh, Jesse, any, anything else on the energy oil markets you want to weigh in on? Anything we missed?
3: I mean, OPEC met today. I- and they announced that they're going to increase daily output, but they've had have been having a hard time meeting the past targets. But you know there is the supply response coming.
0: Yeah, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, the Saudis and I think the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, they they actually do have excess capacity to produce uh, uh, if they had to. I mean, if other mm-hmm. OPEC producers couldn't step up can't meet their the increase in their quota because they just don't have the capacity or the ability to do it, that Saudi could do that. Uh, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay.
3: And All if you're right. looking at the U.S., active rotary rig counts are still yeah. really low. And I understand Chris's point about supply chain issues, but you know that hopefully we can iron that out and we should see a big response, which we have at least in the last 10, 15 years when oil prices jump, you can start to see a lot of investment in mining shafts and wells in the u.s
0: yeah i have noticed in the weekly rotary mm-hmm. rig data for the u.s it has taken off it's it feels yep. like it's, it's gone to a whole another level of increase here so it's rising pretty quickly and which would you ex, you know expect given the high price and but it feels like it's moving in the right direction yeah okay all right jesse anything on the energy front you want to bring in
4: one thing I'd just add on the energy front uh, with respect to EMs is there are sort of a huge, uh, you know, differential impact for inflation. Rob, you were kind of talking about the impact on inflation for Europe. And, you know, for EMs, energy is just a much larger weight in the consumer basket. So inflation risks are, are a lot higher. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, as we kind of go forward and, and think about possible impacts going forward.
0: So let, let's turn this right back to Europe uh, to get a better sense of what's going on there. I was just on a, a call with a, a number of EU officials, and they pointed out a couple of other vulnerabilities that, I'm, cu- Garab, I'm curious uh, as to what you think. One was around refugees, Ukrainian refugees. They're anticipating a lot of refugees coming from Ukraine into the rest of Europe. And of course, where these refugees go is going to be quite varied across Europe, but this is going to be a a significant issue. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, what you you think about that. And then they also kind of downplayed the the, kind of the the financial links between European banks and financial institutions and Russian banks and financial institutions. Uh, You know, I... uh, was looking at some data from the Bank of International Settlements. And just for context, it showed that at the end of last year, I think it was the third quarter of last year, the last data point, U.S. banks had approximately $15 billion of claims on Russian banks, whereas European banks, and this is EU plus the U.K., have something closer to $90 billion in claims on Russian banks, all of which I guess are at risk at this point. But is that a big deal, or you know, something to be worried about? Or and what are some of the other? I threw those two things out: refugees and the banking links. Are there any other kind of linkages between Europe and Russia that we you think might be important to just consider here and you know put on on the on the on the table as potential vulnerabilities?
1: So the refugee problem is is is, is definitely one that Europe needs to consider. Um, there are reports of. Millions of people having been displaced currently in Ukraine as a result of the war, and I think I mentioned right at the outset reports of about half a million pouring across the border into Eastern Europe. Europe needs to resettle refugees, uh, and it's it's not just the not just the EU we're talking about here. Even in the UK, rules around Ukrainian refugees and the right to enter, the ability to enter the UK, have been relaxed. So it's clear that European countries are going to accept refugees. They will be settled across. Uh, different parts of the EU uh, uh, over time, I would imagine, and I would also imagine that uh, at least for, at least for now, refugees will be holding on to the hope that they are able to get back to the Ukraine someday, and that their stay in stay in the EU is temporary. But of course, we have to wait and see um, as and when the fog of war recedes and what 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 the lay of the land is as to what will happen there. Um, it's also interesting in the context of the politics of Europe and the politics of the UK. Um, which has all sort of been less welcoming towards refugees in recent years. But this, this war has changed that view. I think it's very clear support for, for Ukrainians and a uh, very clear desire to, to take Ukrainian refugees in and, and give them you know, the food and shelter they need, uh, at least for a period of time. So that's, that's that's the situation on refugees, as I can see it right now. On on banking links, this has been studied in, in some depth. there was quite been quite a lot of speculation about this for months, I suppose. But we mustn't forget that um, Russia, Russian organizations, Russian banks have been subject to, to sanctions or sanctions regimes since 2014. And Europe has withdrawn to a large extent from the Russian financial its engagement with the Russian financial system. So it is much less of a deal than it used to be. There are some... some um, European banks that are more exposed than others um, in in Hungary for instance or in Austria uh, and even institutions one or two institutions in France but for none of these is the is it is it um, an immense deal and it's certainly not systemic from a European eurozone perspective so we expect issues to arise in, in particular in parts of the banking system uh, we've, we've heard reports of banks certain banks are spending dividends etc um, because they're concerned about the Russian exposures um, but we don't see this as being systemic for the Russian for the, for the eurozone financial system at all um, Russian corporates Russian banks they' their listings in European markets I mean that's those days are over we don't expect to see uh, debt equity offerings in Europe for a long time to come um, it's very unlikely that the sanctions regime will be lifted anytime soon I would I would be bearish on that Um and, and also, in the current context, over the last few days, Russian entities listed in Europe have simply seen uh, values of debt and equity wiped out, um, which, which, of course, is, is is harmful for certain investors. Um, I think the third, so you also asked if there are any other links. So one of the interesting sort of side links that comes out, things like localized property markets impacts. London, for instance, has a fair bit of property in the hands of Russian investors, and these Russian investors, no doubt, are looking to exit these properties as we speak. Switzerland is another area where, where we have a fair bit of property investments by Russians. So the ability of Russians to continue to hold on to these properties or perhaps transact hastily and fire sales some of their properties, that's likely. Um, at least in the UK, that that's that's probably fairly limited impact on property markets outside of that specific region of central London. Um, In the longer term, we would expect that flows simply change scope the way in which Russians have invested in Europe. That's just going to change. Those days are simply over. So we should expect to see, not expect to see a resumption of that.
0: Great. Okay. Well, that's helpful. So just to kind of put a number on uh, our forecast for Europe, and here I'm EU, uh, mostly thinking about the EU, the European Union are uh, in our baseline, under our baseline assumptions about, about how all this plays out, is that uh, that y- European real GDP growth this year in calendar year 2022 will be about you know a half a point, maybe a little bit more than half a point below what it was prior to all of this mess. Does that feel about right to you at this point, Grav? Uh, are you feeling uh, good about that expectation or, or are you are your things getting darker for you?
1: Uh, we've been thinking about this for a while, and I think we still hold that view. Uh, our current, our February baseline forecast for twenty twenty two for the eurozone is about four percent growth. So, growth softening this quarter, next, and and after that, that's 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 inevitable. I think um, half a percentage point feels about right. There's a fair bit of uncertainty around this, so I wouldn't be surprised to see it get slightly better or even get slightly worse. But as things stand right now, ballpark, a half a percentage point reduction in 2022 growth feels like the right sort of direction of travel for the baseline.
0: Okay. And before we move on to the rest of the world, let, let, let's just quickly talk about Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, for the Ukrainian economy, this is just, you know, complete catastrophe. I it's, I can't even imagine what this means, you know, for that economy. For the Russian economy, it feels like they're just gone into the abyss here, and it doesn't feel like there's any way out. I mean, as long as Russia is in Ukraine in a significant way, meaning occupying Kiev or Kharkiv or, you know, big parts of, of Ukraine, it doesn't seem as if the U.S. or Europe or other Western or other uh, economies are going to uh, change their sanctions. The sanctions are going to remain very tight you know it may even get tighter here as we go forward it feels like every time i look at a, a a website you know i'm seeing another company saying that they've stopped shipping shoes or shipping iphones or you know people are just cutting off their links with with russia and i, I don't think there's any going back here until the russians figure out a way to leave ukraine it so that it feels like there's there's nothing but negative numbers for and big negative numbers for the Russian economy for the foreseeable future. Do, does that sound right to you or do you have a, does that make a, make sense to you?
1: I, I, I guess so. I think the issue here is is one of uncertainty. It's really hard to see um, how bad it's going to be in the near term. and in fact, it's easy just to to make it very, very bad and then make it worse the next day. So we've also got to hold back from that. I think Ukraine, clearly, huge amount of devastation going on. And as I was pointing out earlier, we seem to be entering a new, more brutal phase of this attack, um, with Russia launching all-out bombardment of cities, so damaging, killing people and also damaging infrastructure, ruining you know, economic, e- economic structures, destroying cities, etc. That's a huge loss to output. Um, I mean, currently, I would imagine that industrial production is just all geared towards supporting the military effort and any other kind of production, any other kind of service is just ground to a halt. So in the immediate term, um, things have clearly fallen off a, off a cliff. Um, but even looking ahead, it feels like with the kind of devastation that the country is likely to sustain, the road back is difficult. Now, if 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 peace returns in a positive way and, and Russian forces pull back or, or there's a Ukrainian victory, I could really see a very big international reconstruction effort kicking in, which would be very positive for the country. So there's hope there. Um, in darker scenarios where that doesn't happen, then this could be a, a very mm. nasty, long-drawn out outcome for Ukraine and its, and, its, and its people. Russia, I think you're right, it's become an international pariah state. The actions of the last week have really been very egregious. There's, there's no way out for Russia right now. Um, unless as you said it completely withdraws from ukraine but even then given what has happened over the last seven days there'll be outstanding issues around war crimes against humanity reparations uh, to be paid etc etc which make it really hard to see the way forward for, for for russia it feels like they've become an international pariah state they will stay that way for a long time to come i should russia is just completely isolated from the world economy and um a lot of countries that will not want to do business with it. Some, however, might. Um, And as long as it has a fair amount of power in global commodity markets for oil, gas, and various other commodities, um, there will be countries that will be willing to transact with Russia, even those that have imposed very strict sanctions against it. And don't forget that even back in the worst part of the Soviet Union, Russia Russia did send its oil and gas into Europe.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough. Hey, uh, let's move on. And and before we uh, talk about what it means for different parts of the global economy, let's talk about the rest of the commodity markets. I mean, because Russia and Ukraine uh, uh, export oil, natural gas, but a lot of other metals, you know, everything from titanium to palladium, uh, various gases like neon, uh, agricultural products like wheat, I believe uh, corn as well. Uh, and, uh, Jesse, uh, can you give us a sense of what's going on in some of these other commodity markets in terms of, you know, we're seeing what's happening very clearly in the oil market. We're, we're seeing what's happening with natural gas, particularly to Europe. What about, uh, these other commodity markets? How are they performing? What's going on with prices?
4: When you look at non-oil commodities, um, whether you're looking at industrial metals or agricultural prices, and the key differentiator is you know, goods or commodities that Russia directly exports and that Russia is a really big player. So aluminum prices and wheat prices are at record highs, surpassing heights, you know, during the commodities boom of the past decade. Whereas the increase in copper, you know, copper prices have increased. It's sort of a bellwether for non-oil commodities as a whole, but they're, they aren't quite as, as high as they were, um, you know, earlier this year. Uh, the long and short of it is even if we come off of you know these peaks, commodity, non-oil commodity prices are going to remain high. And that's going to be uh, another headwind uh, to global supply chain uh, issues and inflation more broadly.
0: And know, Ryan, you look at these markets too pretty carefully. Anything you want to point out uh, in terms of pricing or any no. disruptions to supplies, anything at all on the, on the commodity side?
3: No, I think Jesse covered it all.
0: Okay. Okay, very good. All right, so uh, let's let's now uh, talk about what it means for the us economy. and uh, you know Chris, uh, m- my sense is that uh, it should be small. again, in our in our baseline world where we're assuming Russia doesn't step outside of Ukraine and that there's no significant actual disruptions to energy or other commodity mark uh, commodity supplies that, you know, eventually the risk premium in these markets will start to come down, we'll get more supply, and we'll start to see prices come in, and and things will moderate. And you know, the U.S. is very energy independent. Uh, it, you know, higher oil prices are a, a negative, but a very small negative because, you know, obviously it hurts consumers, American consumers, particularly low-income consumers, but it benefits the energy industry, so the net of all that is, you know, a small, small negative. Um, what do you think? Am I? Are we being too Pollyannish about all this? Uh, I mean, I talked about the banking links; they're very small. The trading links are very small. Uh, you know, there's some concern that maybe if Europe weakens, there's going to be some blowback on the U.S. because of, of the trade with Europe. But that's all. When you do the arithmetic there, that doesn't add up to a whole lot. So, uh, what do you think? Are we uh, being overly uh, optimistic here uh, with regard to the uh, the impact on the U.S. economy?
2: I think we might be. I think there are, again, there are uh, significant downside risks, some of which we haven't, I think, uncovered yet. We're, we're only a week into this uh, this war. I worry about com- consumer confidence or confidence in general, right? Uh, if this is a protracted, long uh, war that, that grinds on week after week, month after month, I think that could certainly affect consumer psyches and also the expectations as we think about inflation, right? So I do worry that the Fed's going to have to take more aggressive actions, for example, uh, around inflation that would certainly cut into to growth. So I don't want to paint the, the, I don't want to adopt the darkest scenario as the baseline quite yet, but I would certainly be uh, more cautious at this point. I, the only upside I see is some regime change, right? Based on what we've just discussed here, I don't I don't see how this Ends otherwise in a, in a positive light. So, and I don't see that happening uh, very quickly or very easily. So,
0: yeah, right, right. Yeah, I guess the, there the, in terms of the downside risk, you mentioned inflation expectations. I mean, obviously, uh, that's they, they're already pretty fragile coming into this because right. of the pandemic effects and high inflation and felt like inflation expectations, certainly for consumers, was. Pretty high, yeah. Uh, and this may, you're, what you're saying is because gas, particularly gasoline prices, because they play such an outsized role in people think thinking around inflation expectations, that this could cause an un- what the uh, what central bankers would say, what the Fed would say, unanchoring of inflation expectations. And when that happens, you run the risk of getting into this wage price spiral. And the Fed will, and other central banks will not tolerate that, and they'll step on the brakes a lot harder. Than what we expect. And that raises the specter of a, a recession later this year going into 2023. That, that feels like yeah. a pretty significant risk. Yeah. yeah.
2: I also worry about some of those other commodities that Jesse mentioned, the metals and, and whatnot. And I think oil actually, we have a little bit more flexibility. There are other countries that can increase production and, and fill in the gap. For some of those other metals, I don't know that we have as much flexibility. I think we are quite dependent on Russian exports. So that's just another supply chain related uh, risk I see out there.
0: Yeah, good point. I guess the other thing I would bring up is uh, the stock market, right? The stock market mm-hmm. is down uh, a, a little over 10% now from its uh, all-time high, set at the beginning of the year before all this mess began, which by itself is no big deal, right? I mean, because it was up yeah. 30% last year, and you know, uh, it, uh, 10% is like a garden variety correction uh, that I don't think I'd worry too much about, but you could construct, cause it is pretty highly market is pretty highly valued. Uh, and there was a lot of sign of frothiness building in. You could see, and it kind of pr- was, you know, pricing in some nothing but good news going forward. And clearly Russia, Ukraine is nothing but bad news that we could see prices fall a lot more down 20, down 25, down 30. Yeah. I guess that could be a problem. Yeah. Then definitely point.
2: you're talking consumer spending, effects, uh, people pulling back and
0: worried about their nest eggs. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Uh, what was, what was I was going to say one other thing about that, but I can't remember what that may was.
2: Maybe Fed Is. policy? You want to turn to Ryan or? Yeah.
0: R- oh yeah. That was it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So Ryan, uh, because of our, in our, again, I keep going back to the baseline. It's kind of the, you know, the stake in the ground that we're kind of thinking about these things. Uh, there's this push and this pull. Uh, I mean, in terms of monetary policy, I mean, obviously, the 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 push is that we've got higher inflation and potentially higher inflation expectations. The pull, or maybe it's the other way around, push or pull. You you get what my drift? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other is it's going to hurt growth. So it's like it's a classic supply shock that just complicates things enormously for central banks and the Fed. What do I? What does the Fed respond to the weaker growth or? In, in, in Increased uncertainty or the inflation. So I think we've landed on, well, it kind of, the crosswinds kind of wash each other out and we have no change in monetary policy. Is that right?
3: That's correct. And if there's any risk, it's just the risk that the Fed does more because they have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to inflation. So if we get some upside surprises relative to their, their forecast on the inflation front, then they're. They're going to put their foot harder on the on the brake because unlike past instances, we've had oil supply shocks, you know, inflation was pretty low. Uh, now it's already high. And if inflation is going to keep it higher for longer, the Fed's not going to tolerate that. And they're going to raise rates more than what is penciled into our baseline forecast.
0: So we have four rate hikes, quarter mm-hmm. point each this year, March in a couple of weeks, uh, June, September, December. What's, what are the markets now saying? Because at some point, seven. Russia, are they still saying seven? Right, They highs? went
3: back up to seven. Okay, I checked this okay. morning. So they wow. went down below six and then they went back up to seven. So because it, I think it, they're doing the same thing we are. Inflation expectations are going to increase because of higher oil prices, retail gasoline prices. And then also the CPI is going to remain elevated for the next few months. And that to them is a hint that you know, the Fed's going to go more aggressively.
0: So uh, prior to Russia's invasion, the the markets investors were kind of starting to price in a half a point increase.
3: Yeah, that's The funds that's rate
0: target, all. that's gone.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I checked this yesterday. It was it was a hundred percent before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now it's down to zero.
0: Zero. Okay. So the yep. okay. So what, what's going on? This is my way of framing it, because of the uncertainty created by this event the thinking is the fed's not going to go f- a half a percentage point at the march meeting they're going to go a quarter point and so the markets now are all in on that but because all of this means higher oil commodity prices higher inflation inflation expectations could come undone they the markets expect the, still the same seven rate increases but i guess that would be what would, would that Spread would out. That be would that be one at each meeting no there's it one. is it's one in each meeting. Okay? For the rest of the year, yes. FOMC meeting. Okay, for the rest mm-hmm. of the year. Okay. And so,
3: March is a done deal. So Fed Chair Jerome Powell testified today, his semi-annual report to Congress, and he said we're going to raise interest rates later this month. So we know 25 basis points to coming.
0: Okay. All right. And and so we we were four before Russia invaded. We are four now. Markets were at seven before Russia invaded. They're at seven now. So... We, we had a kind of a different perspective on how aggressive the Fed was going to be, but still do. Nothing really has changed here. Fed policy, monetary policy has unchanged as a result of the Russian invasion.
3: You know, I think the market's doing some of the Fed's work for them. So that's why I, I, it's oh, hard
5: to
0: point. see them
3: doing seven interest rates. I mean, financial market conditions have tightened a lot. Uh, you've seen corporate bond spreads widen out. They're still really low from a historical perspective, but they're widening. The stock market, as you said, is down 10%. So if it goes further, you know, that actually takes rate hikes off the table because the markets are doing, you know, some of the Fed's work.
0: That's a a great point. So the uh, monetary policy affects the real economy largely through, or at least primarily through, initially through financial conditions, stock prices, credit spreads in the bond market, um, uh, interest rates generally, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so... Because the Russian invasion has caused uh, stock prices to fall, caused uh, corporate bond uh, yields to rise, the borrowing costs for businesses to rise more, uh, that that has taken some of the pressure off of the Fed. So it's, uh, it's almost like that is a rate hike, an additional is, rate hike right. by the Fed. Okay. All right. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Very good. Um, okay. Let me uh, bring in uh, one of our other colleagues at this point, Adam Caymans. A- Adam, uh, welcome. Adam manages... Uh, our u.s regional economic analysis and uh, I, I asked him to join because i'd like to hear a little bit about what you think this means for different regional economies across the u.s what, what, you know how you, has your thinking changed uh, with regard to that
5: sure thanks mark so as, as everyone sort of suggested and as you suggested when you were talking to chris the, the shock to the u.s economy is, is going to be fairly mild, at least in the baseline, but there are some real differential impacts. So the way I think about it is there's sort of energy market impacts and then everything else. Uh, So in terms of energy markets, right, we we already touched a little bit upon the fact that oil prices are going to be high across the U.S., across really all major shell plays in the U.S., prices are going to be above break even for a while. So I think we're going to continue to see more investment, more drilling taking place. So places like Texas, North Dakota, Alaska, Oklahoma, all these places that really depend on the the energy economy on the on on oil uh, are positioned to benefit to some extent. Now, I would caution everyone not to get you know, too optimistic about the prospects for those states. I think right there's enough uncertainty around kind of where oil prices are going to go, that I don't know that they're going to invest as if you know we're going to have $100 a hundred dollar barrel oil for you know, the next six to twelve months per se. Uh, And then there's a lot of constraints around costs. Uh, Capital costs are high, labor costs are high. Because of all of that, I think that investment is going to be a little bit more restrained than you might otherwise see when oil prices are what they are right now. Um, And then the other kind of positive impact, I would say, would just be some spillover to the Midwest and portions of the country where oil oil drilling equipment is being made, right? So... uh, just sort of downstream and upstream impacts throughout the the supply chain for for energy producers. I think you, you do get a benefit there. So that's kind of the upside. The downside is much more diffuse. So it's you know, we can't identify sort of you know a handful of states the way we do with oil producers and say these are the states that are going to be hurt significantly more than others, but there are some there are some ways to differentiate. So I think the most important one is looking at the consumer picture and where Rising gasoline prices are going to hurt most. So, kind of the first thing we look at whenever there's an oil price shock in either direction is where do people drive the most, right? And where do they use the most gasoline? So, um, actually, I could, I could quiz everyone here. We don't quite, I, 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 I know uh, we don't have time for quite uh, a numbers well, game here, but
0: yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's not appropriate. But my guess is low income households in the southeast is where you'd see the biggest impact that's where folks drive the most is that right exactly so i was gonna ask which state yeah exactly so i was looking at which state georgia north carolina
5: you're in you're in the ballpark yeah it's alabama alabama Alabama. mississippi the dakotas uh those are the states where uh there's the most gasoline consumption per capita so right that reflects the fact that people drive more also reflects the fact that ev and hybrid penetration is lower people are driving larger vehicles in those regions. So the impact of higher gasoline prices is just going to be more pronounced, and the impact on consumers is going to be more pronounced in those areas. Uh, and then firms that rely on energy as an input are also going to be hurt, right? So automakers are going to be hurt, uh, not so much because they're relying on, they are relying on, on energy as an input, but uh, just because of the broader impact to gasoline prices. Uh, and then there are a handful of other energy intensive industries. The Paper production, cardboard production industry actually is one that's been doing quite well with, you know, since the pandemic with more packaging being produced. That one takes a major hit. That is among the most uh, energy intensive industries uh, out there. So any area that depends on that will also face a little bit of a setback. I can stop there. That's kind of the energy picture. I don't know if you want me to dive into some. Some of the other impacts as well, or if we want to kind of well, pause. Well, you know, uh,
0: Garav mentioned some localized impacts on real estate markets because of uh, Russian, particularly Russian investment in those markets. Do you have any examples of that here in the U.S.? Yes.
5: Uh, so there, there's two markets that I think are most concerning. and That would be New York City and Miami. Uh, the, those are markets that probably not to the same extent as London or in in Western Europe, but those are the two markets in the U.S. that do have a bit of exposure to Russian investment. So just to give some context, one specific Russian oligarch, right, uh, Abramovich, I believe is uh, his name, has over, I think it's over 100 million in properties in midtown Manhattan, right? There's generally these oligarchs have not been sanctioned directly yet, but certainly r- the ultra luxury market in both of those cities uh demand is, is very limited. There's only a handful of people that can afford these really high-end apartments. And Russian oligarchs are, uh, you know, generally them and a, a number of wealthy Chinese investors. And so you're you're losing part of the demand pie uh, there. Uh, the one thing I'll say about all of this is that uh, a lot of the these very re- wealthy Russian individuals who are buying properties in these markets, uh, it's not as if sort of they're they're, you know, Closing, signing their name, and it's just kind of attributed to them directly. There are shadow corporations, there are sort of other entities at play here that I don't think it's kind of a straight line to, you know, from sanctions to suddenly, you know, these Russian buyers are just totally out of the picture.
0: Okay, very good. And in, in terms of uh, trade uh, 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 between the US and Russia, what are some of the major things that the US ships to Russia, exports to Russia? And uh, are they? do they have any regional consequences?
5: A little bit. So uh, transportation equipment is the biggest one. Uh, so the two states that have the most exposure to Russia as a destination for exports are South Carolina and Washington, right? So South Carolina is uh, motor vehicle parts and cars generally. Washington is all, it's about aerospace, right? And aerospace equipment going to Russia. Both of those are, are going to grind to, I think, maybe not grind to a complete halt, but pretty close uh, with the sanctions regime and, and possibly some self-sanctioning as well.
0: Um, is that, is I that will, a big
5: deal in the grain scale? Yeah, it's not that big a deal, though. Oh, okay. Uh, so just to put it in context, so South Carolina is the state that over the last few years has the highest exposure to Russia as an export uh, market. It is the 20th highest, in terms of the countries that South Carolina sends its products to, Russia ranks 20th on the list. It's less than 1%. So it's not really going to have a material impact on the economy there.
0: I guess, the, as I mentioned earlier, one other question I get is, well, if, if the European economy struggles as a result of this, then what does it mean for, the, for US trade? So are, are there regions of the country that are more exposed to Europe? I mean, I, I I would assume the Northeast, if, if my recollection is correct, is that right? Yeah, that's it- that's
5: right. Generally, the Northeast is the most exposed to the European economy, uh, partly through trade, uh, and then partly just through the the flow of people uh, back and forth, or travel back and forth to to Europe. I right. think I don't think you know Russia, obviously Ukraine, are not big markets in terms of attracting visitors to. Big northeastern cities, but if the rest of Europe is severely disrupted and suddenly the flow of tourists from London or Paris or Italy or wherever that you know Germany, uh, if that slows materially, then that has a very significant impact on the Northeast. But that's a risk. I don't expect that to happen.
0: Yeah. And and, yeah. Okay. Any other links that we're not thinking about, or I'm not thinking about, in terms of the U.S. in in uh, in Russia that has a regional. In, uh, differential regional impact?
5: I'll give you I'll give you a couple just kind of quick hitters here. Yeah. So one would be farms and farmers, right? So we talked a lot yeah, about wheat okay. prices already. There's a lot of volatility there. There could be upside associated with wheat prices. But uh, Russia is a big exporter of fertilizer. Uh, and so that is going to push farmers' costs up. All of this means consumer prices for food are going to go up. But there's, I think, even more uncertainty for farmers, which... Unfortunately for them, it's kind of par for the course when there's big geopolitical events. We saw this with the trade war a few years ago, but I think just more risk in both directions for farmers. And then the other one that I would highlight, and this actually is a follow-up to something that uh, you've, you talked about in the podcast last week would be neon exports from Russia and the impact on semiconductors, right? And so that could have a significant impact on the Western US in particular, Silicon Valley, Portland, Phoenix, Boise, these are all places that have a very large semiconductor manufacturing presence. There's been a lot of talk, actually, I think in the State of the Union, this came up, the the new Intel plant in Columbus, a lot of excitement around the possibility of domestic semiconductor manufacturing, rightfully so, but this could be very disruptive to that. and Some of the upside there might, might take
2: a hit.
0: Great. Well, thanks, uh, Adam. That was a really good uh, swing around the country. So let me uh, now turn to uh, another colleague, Alfredo. Alfredo Cutino. Alfredo manages our LATM team. Uh, and Alfredo, I'm, a, I'm. I haven't really thought about LATM that carefully, but it feels like there's a lot of crosswinds here. That you know, higher commodity prices is, is probably a good thing for a lot of the LATM economies, but yet, uh, uh, you know, LATM is you know tied into uh china and the rest of the emerging world and and that you know in terms of growth it can't be a good thing but uh, the net what is the net of all that is this good or bad for uh
6: so far is good and actually i would say that uh unlike um other uh external shocks in the past uh we could see that there are some benefits for latin america so far Uh, I'm talking about in the past uh, two months and particularly in the last week, uh, basically because, um, first of all, uh, the region doesn't have strong financial links with uh, Russia, with Ukraine, uh, a little more with Europe, particularly with uh, Spain, UK, Germany, but uh, financial markets have not been impacted significantly. Uh, in the past uh, few days. And actually uh, what we see is that uh, it was only um, a small overshooting in currencies. Uh, That was last uh, Thursday when things were more uncertain between uh, Ukraine and the rest of the world. But then Latin American currencies uh, uh, appreciated. So in net, I would say that in the past two weeks, Latin American currencies have not uh, depreciated, but on the contrary, they have revaluated. Now, one important factor uh, behind this is the high commodity, high commodity prices, as you mentioned, is, uh, it's a positive for Latin America. So governments are uh, getting extra export revenues. Uh, central banks are accumulating more foreign reserves. And uh, that explains uh, to a great extent why Latin American currencies are are behaving uh, positively. But of course, um, it's just uh, a week since um, the military conflict started. So it's too early to say, uh, so what is going to be the impact on the real economy? Uh, But so far, I mean, exports in Latin America have been performing very well, not only this year, but since the second half of last year. And I would say like a a common denominator for uh, most of the countries in Latin America, uh, if there is a negative impact in coming months, it's going to be minimum and um, the government is getting uh, extra revenues to offset or uh, counter any potential uh, inflation impact on uh, consumer prices. Uh, so th- that, that's what we are seeing now in Latin America.
0: Okay, great. And so I guess the the, uh, the economic jargon would be the terms of trade have shifted in favor of LATM economies just because uh, prices are up for the things that they produce, for the commodities yeah, right. they produce.
6: Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so
0: far, the growth effects uh, are minimal. It doesn't feel like that's going to be a big deal. So the price effects are a plus here. No, yeah, and actually
6: I mean, was... there is a side effect which could also benefit Latin American exports. And that happens uh, two years ago when um, when uh, it was an aggravation of the trade frictions between the U.S. and China. So the U.S. turned to Latin American producers, producers of uh, agriculture, agricultural products and started to import from Latin America. So something similar could happen here also, particularly because Russia is a big producer of uh, agricultural products. So Latin America could gain some uh, market share in this particular.
0: Yeah, I guess in a sort of a kind of a way of thinking about it is Russia is kind of sort of like an emerging economy, really, when you think about it. And so what happened is Russia is no longer really a player uh, in these markets or much less of one. Uh, or there's the the, the, fa- the fear that they will be, and therefore that's driven up the price. So it, and it's benefiting other producers of these commodities, and that's that's economies.
6: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: Okay. Very good. Well, thanks for that. And then finally, I want to we're kind of going around the world here. Finally, I want to land uh, with Steve Cochran. Steve manages uh, our uh, efforts in Asia, and Steve, kind of sort of like. Uh, emerging markets here, I, it feels more like a small negative, not, you know, I don't think it's a positive, because Asia consumes a lot of energy in these commodities, doesn't produce a lot of them. So the terms of trade have shifted away from a- Asia. But, you know, it, the, the, the impact here feels small. Is that, is that a fair characterization?
7: I think that that is fair. I don't think we'll see the impact here that we see uh, in Europe, but it's not the plus uh, that Alfredo was talking about in Latin America. You know that the uh, channels by which the the Ukraine uh, war impact uh, Asia are through energy. If I, I there are there are four basic channels and in, in, uh, ordered, the the biggest one of course is energy because. All of Asia, with the exception of Malaysia, is a net energy importer. And then food prices will be very, very important in terms of uh, what happens with inflation. The third is uh, supply chains, uh, much like what Adam talked about uh, with the U.S. semiconductor makers. And the fourth, but maybe less so, is financial volatility. But with energy, uh, this is a very important uh, uh, aspect of the economy because, The economy has been doing very well, and much like Latin America, the exports have been strong over the last year. um, And the fourth quarter was very strong in Asia, even into this uh, 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 January, February, industrial production has been very strong and uh, exports have have continued to be uh, strong. Uh, But uh, that advantage may begin to uh, disappear if uh, demand from uh, Europe in particular begins to, uh, at the same time that uh, costs of energy begin to rise. There's not a lot of direct uh, um, uh, deliveries of uh, energy, crude oil, uh, petroleum from Russia to Asia, it's all indirect. So it's really just the direct indirect price effects with two exceptions, China and India do uh, buy a fair amount of crude oil, petroleum and coal directly from Russia. So if those supplies are cut off in any way, that would actually um, uh, be to the detriment of, of uh, China and India. Um, the, I, I mentioned food second, because uh, food inflation has been very critical in uh, Asia that where inflation has been high to a high degree, it is because food prices have been high. And energy plays into the cost of production and distribution of, of food. Uh, and this again, India India seems to come up a lot. I think if there's one single country that is probably at the highest risk, it is, it, it is uh, India. Uh, and because one, it has the highest uh, inflation rate now in all of the major Asian countries, it's a 6%. And it actually went up uh, last month uh, to 6%. And much of that is b- because of food and uh, there is some exposure to imports from uh, Ukraine in particular in India. Uh, There's been a shortage for a while of edible oils, uh, uh, cooking oil in India, and a lot of that has been uh, lately provided by uh, Ukraine. They they provide uh, safflower oil, um, uh, sunflower oil, and such, and that may be gone, and they they will need to look for other sources of that. And That could add to um, uh, food inflation. It could then tick up total inflation up right now it's right at the very top of the uh reserve bank of india's uh inflation target rate which is between four and six percent so and and the rbi has been holding back on uh raising interest rates trying to give the economy indian economy a chance to get back on both both feet uh and uh they're going to have some uh tough decisions to make very soon about uh policy normalization and um I think policy, uh, and going to Ryan's point about the Federal Reserve, uh, one of the um, one of the risks in Asia is that uh, our ba- our baseline forecast is that, except for a few countries where inflation now does exceed target rates, like in Korea, Singapore, and New Zealand, the central banks would give the economies another. Six months or so, at least, to really show that they're, you know, back on their feet after uh, uh, COVID last year. Before they begin to normalize rates, Uh, the risk is that, uh, you know, if the Fed were to say uh, uh, hike by 50 basis points, then uh, central banks in Asia might have to move sooner. It sounds like that risk is easing a little bit, and that's a uh, that's a good thing. I guess finally, uh, to go back to supply chains, uh, Korea, uh, Taiwan. Uh, very critical uh, uh, providers of uh, semiconductors in Malaysia and Thailand, components for those semiconductors. Uh, it seems like the uh, semiconductor makers in the region do have at least a near-term supply for all these uh, rare gases and rare minerals that go into uh, chips. But if this lasts a long time, uh, these supply chain shortages could, could ramp up uh, uh, once again. Right now, it feels like supply chains in Asia are really beginning to ease up. Things aren't nearly as bad as they were back in the, say, the third quarter or fourth quarter of last year. And uh, so we're okay in the near term. Uh, but if uh, if if these supply constraints uh, uh, continue for some time, then we're back to square one on the supply chain issue for uh,
0: tech. Thanks for that, uh, Steve. Uh, quickly, um, uh, U.S.-China uh, relationship, obviously quite tense. Um any discussions in Asia around what all this means for that relationship or or anything? There are a lot of discussions. Uh, You, you, you
7: see, uh, there are a lot of um, conversations going on, maybe is the best way to say of just trying to figure out where Asia fits between China and the U S now, you know, for, for much of Asia, there's a very natural fit uh, uh, with China in terms of the very strong trade links uh, uh, and, and such. And uh, also the fact that the U.S. had stepped away from Asia for some time. So the question really is, well, so is the U.S. really going to step back into Asia and Southeast Asia and take a firm role and actually encourage uh, a more uh, U.S. investment uh, in, in the region and such? And offset uh, China, and then of course the conversation uh, about China and Taiwan is, is uh, always part of the, the conversation as well. Of, you know, what are what are the security risks? How heightened are the geopolitical risks uh, uh, in the region? There's a, a little bit of uncertainty. There's also some, you know, positive feeling that, you know, as geopolitical risk becomes increasingly, uh, an important aspect of the whole uh, risk appetite of, of firms and so forth, uh, that this could accelerate uh, investment away from where investment is now concentrated to a certain extent, China, of course, uh, Vietnam as, as well, and uh, spread out across particularly Southeast Asia or India. So the, the, the risks, the conversations go in both directions, but certainly there's lots and lots of talk going on.
0: Okay, very good. Okay, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, guys, anything I missed uh, that I should have brought up in the conversation? Any other points? No? Okay, all right, well, very good. This is obviously, this is the second podcast we've done, I think, in the last two weeks on Russia, Ukraine, and there'll be more. We have a webinar uh, next week where we'll kind of reprise this conversation, but we'll you know have some more graphics and more in-depth discussion. Uh, and, um, you know, we, uh, will continue to, uh, uh, bring you, uh, any changes that we make to our thinking about the, uh, economic outlook. So with that, uh, let me call it a, a podcast, uh, and, uh, thanks very much for attending. Take care.